Second Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. And when I saw that I was on the schedule for this passage, I looked at it and I'm like, how am I, I going to cover eight verses in you know, an hour and a half that we have? So it won't be that long. But. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 3, 11 through 18. We're looking at this last section in Peter's second letter. And we're going to title this section, Living in Anticipation of Christ's Return. Living in Anticipation of Christ's Return. Peter wrote this divine revelation as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what he says in chapter 1. And he penned this letter for the purpose of safeguarding the church from the constant attack of false teachers and their false teaching. And I just want to do a quick review of the book since this is our last study in this book. Um, it's kind of been a short study, a quick study through this book. Um, throughout Scripture, there are all kinds of warnings against false teachers, as you know, and God repeatedly demonstrates what I call His protective grace upon His, chur- his church and upon His children. And Peter wants to protect us as believers. He wants the church to be able to stand firm on the Word of God. And in this letter, Peter gives us three basic defenses against false teachers and their false teaching. Number one, know your salvation. We looked at this at the beginning of the book. Know your salvation. That's chapter one. Number two, at the end of chapter one, know your scripture. Be sure you're really saved and that's the first protection. And then know your scripture. Know and obey the word of God. That's the second protection that God gives us in this book of 2 Peter. Then the third protection is found here in chapter 3. Know your sanctification. Know your sanctification. So make sure you're growing in Christ's likeness. Make sure you're growing in holiness. Make sure you're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Know your sanctification. And then we also saw in chapter 2 a fourth protection. That is know your adversaries. And we spent several weeks through chapter 2, looking at the characteristics of the false teachers. And so those three defense lines are ours as our protection by God. Know our salvation, know the scripture, know our sanctification. And remember that all of these are based on knowledge, as we saw in chapter 1 in verses 3 and 4. We need to know these things in order to be protected We must know the condition of our salvation. We must know our relationship to God. We must know the scripture. We must know our spiritual condition in terms of our our sanctification. And also we must know our adversaries. We need to know how to recognize false teachers by understanding and recognizing their ungodly characteristics. Now, chapter 3, as we saw last week, uh, Bob taught through the first 10 verses Peter is refuting the false teachers who were trying to attack the second coming of Christ. And so the first ten verses, he's been refuting those who deny Jesus' coming. All right? And he he powerfully affirms that, that Jesus truly will come again. All right? Each day that we live, and this is just a reminder to me as I study this passage and for all of us, Each day that we live, we're one day closer to the return of Christ. One day closer. I don't know what day that's going to be, but we are one day closer than yesterday, right? 
We should all say amen to that. One day closer. That's exciting. And when Peter wrote this, now we're 2,000 years closer. So in these last eight verses of this epistle, Peter turns now our attention to how the doctrine of Christ's second coming applies to us as believers. How do we apply the truth that Christ is coming back soon? That doctrine of imminence. He could come at any time. And I think Peter's concerned that we as believers have a proper understanding and then a proper response to this doctrine of the return of Christ. And so he starts in verse 11 by saying, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Having just made it very clear that Jesus is coming, what does that mean to us? What does it mean to you? What kind of person should I be? If I know that Jesus is coming, what are the practical implications for us as believers? If we're anticipating the day of God, as it says here in verse, uh, verse 12 and down in verse 18, we're, we're anticipating that day of eternity, how should it impact our lives today? Now keep in mind he uses this phrase, the day of God, and we're going to see that in a moment. And then the day of eternity in verse 18. The day of God, the day of eternity refers to the eternal state. And he says, if you're longing for that eternal state, if you're longing for that new heaven and new earth, that glorious eternity, it's going to impact your life. It should impact your life. It should make us radically different. So this phrase, since all these things are to be destroyed... What sort of people ought you to be? Verse 10, he says, The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. If you look up in verse 7, he says, The present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, since we know that's going to happen... Since all these things are to, be, are to be destroyed in this way, and it'll bring in the day of God, the eternal state, the eternal glory, what sort of people should we be? How shall we then live, as Francis Schaeffer said? Notice in this verse, in verse 11, there's no question mark here. It's not a question. It's an exclamation. What sort of people ought we to be? It's the word... In Greek, patapus. It doesn't actually ask a question. It's an exclamation of, of astonishment. How astonishingly we should be living. How, how astoundingly, how excellent we ought to be. So there's this level of excellence to which we must live based on the fact, based on the truth of, of Christ's second coming, first in judgment and then in glory. And that's a challenge to all of us to conform our lives to the reality of eternity. It's a, it's a very somber passage, but it's also one of hope and one of joy, isn't it? In other words, if Jesus is coming back, how should we live? How should that affect us? And we're going to get into this when we look at our discussion questions later, but uh, the, the primary purpose of prophecy is not just to educate our minds. It's not just to give us more information. It's not just to satisfy our curiosities. A lot of people approach prophecy like that. 
the primary purpose of prophecy that is that it would affect how we live today, in the here and now. Because of what's going to happen in the future, how should we then live? What kind of people should we be? We're not in the world, we're strangers. We've already learned that through First and Second Peter. We're aliens. We reside here as aliens. We're pilgrims. We're not part of this world. Our citizenship is where? In heaven, right? So we're not to love the world or the things in the world. We're looking for a city whose architect and builder is who? God. A city not made with human hands, eternal in the heavens. And so what kind of people should we be? We should believe in and have confidence in the glory that's coming and it should affect how we live. So he goes on to give us, give us some practical uh, implications of, of living in light of Christ's coming. The first couple of things we see here is in verse 11 at the end of the verse. In holy conduct and godliness. That's kind of a general characteristic of what we'll see in the remaining uh, part of the book. Holy conduct, that is our external actions and behavior and godliness. That's our internal heart attitudes and reverence. And then he get, he's going to give us seven characteristics of what should be in our lives as believers as we anticipate the return of Christ. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of the chapter down through verse 18. So what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? So he's speaking about our external lives and our internal lives. What we do on the outside and what we are like on the inside Holy conduct, behavior, godliness, the inward attitudes. So we're talking about those things that rule our behavior and those things that review, that rule our hearts. Our daily conduct, our daily attitude. It's got to be consistent with the hope that we have of eternal glory. And by the word, by the way, the words holy conduct and godliness, those are in the plural. Holy conducts and godlinesses. In other words, it's, it's to encompass all of our lives. It's not just on Sundays. It's not just when we feel like it. It's, it's to be part of our lives, our existence here as, as redeemed Christians, as those who are children of God waiting for that blessed hope. Now, in the, like I said, the last seven verses now, we're going to look at seven things that should characterize our lives as Christians in the light of Christ's return. And I'm going to give all seven for you, and then we'll kind of go through them. We have about an hour and a half, I think, here. So we're good, right? I wish. Okay. Let me give you these seven, and then we'll work through the passage. Number one is anticipation. I'm getting these from MacArthur, but I changed the words because they're just too, I don't know. They're good, but I don't use those words, so I, I, I will use words that I can better understand instead of pacification and things like that. So number one is anticipation. Number two, peacefulness. Three, purity. Four, evangelism. Five, discernment. Six, growth. And seven, worship. And those things mark out our lives in holy conduct and godliness. All of those things are involved in when we talk about holy conduct and godliness. In other words, what we're going to see here is really an expanded definition of sanctification, an expanded definition of holy conduct and godliness. Verse 12, 
Let's start working through the text. First of all, anticipation, verses 12 and 13. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so here we see the characteristic of anticipation. Since I'm headed for eternal glory, since I'm going to be a citizen of God's eternal kingdom, since I'm going to be delivered from the day of the Lord and enter into the day of God, I should be living in the expectation of that glory. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. This word for looking for, it's a, it's a present tense, which means we're continually supposed to be doing this action, looking for it, and it has the idea of expectancy. It's an outlook on life that watchfully waits for the Lord's return. And then the word hastening, it gives the idea of eager desire. So you put them together, there's, there's a longing expectation and desire for Christ to come back. The question I ask myself, and I'll ask you the same question, do I have that? Am I waiting for that? Sometimes I, I think we, we go through our daily lives and we get so busy, we don't even think about Christ's return. But it's something we should be looking for continually, hastening, waiting for it, expecting eagerly, yearning for it. All of those words that describe an intense desire for something to come and happen. It's the word Maranatha in 1 Corinthians 16. Lord, come. It's the word that we see at the end of the book of Revelation. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 1 John 2, verse 28 says, When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. In other words, if we're looking for and longing for and that expectation has affected the way we live, we're not going to be ashamed when he comes. If my life's right, I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm going to be eager. If, if we have unconfessed sin or we're living in sin, we're, not, we're going to be ashamed. We're not going to want him to come. We're not ready, right? And so while we're waiting for the presence of the Lord, by the way, the word presence here in verse... Um, 12, hastening the coming, or I'm sorry, verse, where am I at here? The coming of the day, God, I'm, I'm off on my notes, I think. Okay, the coming of the day of the Lord, um, where am I? There we go. I'm missing it in my notes, I think. Okay, verse 12, there we go. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, that word coming there is the Greek word parousia, and it means his appearing, his coming. It always means his presence, the presence of Christ. It's his physical bodily presence. All through the New Testament, that word always refers to his physical presence. And so we're looking for that coming. And every time this word is used, like I said, it refers to the presence of Christ. It's not referring to an event. It's not referring to uh, a place. It's referring to a person. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while we wait for him to come, and if our lives are right, then we're going to be longing for and looking for and hastening the day of God. 
I'll move quickly on. Um, it's interesting that if we're looking for and hastening the day of God, um, it's going to bring about, uh, in order to bring that about, something else has to happen. That is, the Lord's got to destroy the present heavens and earth so he can create the new heavens and earth, right? And we don't look for the, the day of the Lord, which is a day of wrath and judgment. We look for the day of God, the day when God creates the new heavens and the new earth. We don't look for the day of destruction. We look at, for the day of paradise restored, renewed. And just to note, the day of the Lord is not the result of any natural process. It's not the result of man's nuclear war. It's not anything natural. Uh, this is God's doing. It's by his word. He's going to affect his judgment and his wrath upon this sin-cursed world. It's divine judgment by Almighty God through the power of Christ whom he has committed for this judgment, this devastation. And that's why back in verse 10 he, he says, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. That's almost exactly what we see here in verse 12, isn't it? So he's repeating this destruction, this judgment. And we saw that earlier in verse 7. By the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now the day of the Lord, as we've seen in scripture, comes in two parts. It comes when Jesus returns in the second coming at the end of the tribulation. And then he sets up his thousand-year kingdom. And then at the end of the thousand years, the second phase of the day of the Lord happens. That's when God destroys this present heavens and earth. But when God's day arrived, that destruction has already taken place. Man's day is over. Now it's God's day. It's the day of God. All right? Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking, not for the day of the Lord, but for the day of God. There's a distinction there. The day of eternity for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. This word promise in verse 13 is singular. It's not promises. God's given us many promises in scripture, but this is specifically the promise, the promise of his return the promise of his coming, the promise of the new heaven and new earth. That's really the idea here. It's the promise that we see throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament of a new heaven and new earth. You can see it. We won't turn to him, but Psalm 102, for instance, Isaiah 65, Revelation 21. <clears throat> throughout the scriptures, we see God's promise of this new heaven and new earth. So according to his promise, we're looking for this new heavens and new earth. The word new there is the word kainos, which means new in quality. Not new in chronology only, but new in quality. And then he says at the end of verse 13 that this new heaven and new earth is where righteousness dwells. I have a question. When I read that, I'm like, do we see righteousness in our world today? Not very often, do we? We see a lot of wickedness and evil and corruption, injustice and so forth. We don't see a lot of righteousness. Someday Jesus is going to come and reign and rule in righteousness. This is going to be a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness <clears throat> dwells. 
That word dwell is really an amazing word. It's the word katakeo, and it means to settle down and be at home. It means to take up permanent residence in a place that's comfortable. He's saying that this new world is a world in which righteousness is no longer a stranger like it is today. Righteousness won't be a foreigner. Righteousness will settle down and finally be at home. It's a place where righteousness is promised because that's where Jesus Christ will be. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who reigns and rules in righteousness. And that's what he's prepared for those who love him. And so we have a tremendous hope of this second coming. And that should be our response, anticipation, expectation, a longing for the day of God. Like in Revelation 22, as I read earlier, amen, come, Lord Jesus, because Jesus has promised, I am coming again, and I'm coming quickly. His idea of quickly and ours may not be the same, but he said he's coming quickly. So we should be in, uh, characterized by anticipation, expectation. Let's move on to the second one, verse 14. And that is peacefulness. Peacefulness. This is where MacArthur said um, pacification. And I'm like, oh, I don't use that word in my normal language. So I'll, I'll go with peacefulness. I don't really even use peacefulness, but I can understand a little bit more. <laughs> peacefulness, the second characteristic. Um, not only should we be characterized by anticipation, but we should be characterized by peacefulness. We should be in peace. He says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Be found by him in peace. He says, therefore, for this reason, and here we go from the indicative to the imperative. We go from the truth that God has given to what it calls us to do, what is our duty. And then he goes on to give us other commands. There are four commands in the rest of this passage. Up to this point, it's just all indicative. It's all truth. He's laying out the truth, and then how do we respond? And so here's the first uh, command that we see in this final passage in 2 Peter. So he says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, what are these things? That's a good question to ask this question. Since you're looking for these things, what things? Well, he just told us earlier, the day of God, right? The new heaven, the new earth, where righteousness dwells. Since we are looking for these things, present active indicative, we're continually looking for these things, not just occasionally, but all the time, all the time looking for these things, always waiting, always looking forward to that day when Christ returns. It's having our minds set on things above, not on things of the earth, right? Colossians 3. And by the way, he uses the word beloved here. Paul loves the people he wrote to. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. He says, since you look for these things, what's the next two words here in English? Be diligent. That's the command. Be continuously diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And that's the first command. Be diligent. In other words, do your best. Make every effort. 
labor, exert yourself, be zealous to do. And it stresses our duty as believers, our responsibility, making every effort to be found by him in peace. And it's interesting, through this, the New Testament scriptures, it's very clear that we will be found by him. When the Lord comes, we will personally be found by him. There's nothing that's going to be hidden in that day. Everything's going to be brought to light. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. You remember Hebrews 4.12, it talks about the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword. The next verse says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So when he comes, he's going to bring to light everything we've done in our lives, whether it be good or whether it be bad. And so we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Christ will judge. He's coming to judge, even the believers, right? And so when we come, we need to be diligent to be found by him in peace. So what does that mean, to be found by him in peace? There are a lot of, lot of understanding of, of that phrase. Um, for the sake of time, I won't give the three others that are, are possibilities. There may be elements of those involved in this. One person says that he's talking about salvation, make sure you're saved. But because he's already calling him beloved, I don't think he's talking about that. He may be talking about professing Christians in the church. And so those who might be professors but not possessors, they need to be found by him in peace, making sure they're genuinely saved. Or it could be make sure you're found in peace with other believers, that you're living in harmony and peace, and you're, you're uh, striving for the unity of the body. But I think what he's really talking about is that we have, we have the attitude and the inner assurance and confidence that when he appears, we're not going to be ashamed, that, we're, that all things are right between us and God, that we're in peace, that we're enjoying the peace of God so we're not worrying, we're not anxious, we're not fearful of Christ's return, but we're in peace. We have a strong, confident sense of the assurance of our salvation, the reality of our faith, so we're not ashamed. All is well between you and God. Philippians 4, you're familiar with this passage. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I think that's what he's talking about, that, that confidence that guards our hearts and our minds, that peace of God, knowing that we're, we're obedient as his children, that we're, we're looking to him for his grace and his mercy. We're looking to him for our strength to serve him and to bring glory to his name. Is that the case with each one of us? Are, if he were to come in the next 24 hours, would we be found by him in peace? What would your life be like if you knew he was coming tomorrow night? You don't, you won't, but if. How would your life be different in the next 24 hours? 
Would you be frantically going around making sure everything's right? Or would you be in a, in a, in a condition of peace, knowing that you're right with God, that all is well between you and the Lord? There's no unconfessed sin. You're, you're seeking by his strength to be living a godly and holy life before him. Would it all be well with you? And that's really the, the challenge of Christian living. Living in a fallen world as fallen sinful people, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Living as we're surrounded by fallen people. Showing all the manifestations of, the, of a sin-cursed world. That everything is right between us and God. There's perfect peace. Will we be found with him? with that peace of assurance, that peace of security. In other words, we're ready. We're ready for him to come. Chapter 1, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 10, Peter uses that same word, be diligent, in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more...